Hello, my name is Nick Spasic, and you're listening to From and Inspired by a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. On this episode, we speak with musician Steve Tulipana of Seasoned Risk about the band's appearance in the 1995 sci-fi noir, Strange Days. Angeles, December 31st, 1999. Lenny Nero, Ray Fiennes, is an ex-cop-turned-street hustler who preys on human nature by dealing the drug of the future. It's an environment that will lead him deep into the danger zone when he falls into a maze filled with intrigue and betrayal, murder, and conspiracy. Angela Bassett and Juliette Lewis co-star in this provocative, action-packed thriller written by James Cameron, Titanic, The Terminator, and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Director Catherine Bigelow's 1995 film Strange Days stars Fines, Angela Bassett, Juliette Lewis, and Tom Sizemore. It's set right before the millennium and borders on the dystopian. The film was an absolute bomb despite the star power in it and behind the scenes. It was co-written by James Cameron, after all. Although, in the last 25 years, it's come to be regarded as an underrated diamond in the rough. Several major scenes in the film feature live musical performances, and one such performance early on features the Kansas City hard rock post-hardcore band Season to Risk. Though featured prominently in performance and, as we'll hear, being on set for two whole weeks, the band's song Undone didn't make the soundtrack release alongside such acts as Lords of Acid, Prong, and Tricky. We talk about all of this and the upcoming reissue of Season to Risk's Men Are Monkeys, Robots Win with the band's frontman, Steve Tulipana. For taking time out of your day to talk to me i appreciate it thanks for uh thinking of me 
So we're talking 1995's Strange Days. Strange Days, indeed. Which seems like an oddly prescient movie, even though it was like written and made about like the turn of the millennium. It seems uh, yeah. a, 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 an oddly appropriate movie to revisit 25 years late, late, later. Uh, where was Season to Risk like before you came to be in that movie? Like, what what stage were you at in, in the band's history? We were actually living in New York um, at Martin BC Studio, uh, BC Studios, New York. That's the summer of, I guess it was ninety. Uh, 94, 95, what, what year, when did the movie come out? The movie came out 96? in 95. 95, I guess that would make sense, 25 years. Um, so I guess it was the summer of 94. We were, we spent in New York, uh, making our second album and we were there all, I mean, we, we lived in the studio, uh, we were there, I mean, just creating and, and writing and, just it was a pretty intense and, and all-consuming kind of project for that second record, and uh, <clears throat> at one point uh, we had uh, out of the blue, our manager hit us up and said, "Hey, I've got an opportunity for you guys. What do you, you know, what do you think?" And they they, they mailed us. They uh, overnighted these. Remember, they were pink pages. They were confidential. And it was like <laughs> a treatment of the thing, and it and then it marked out what our role would be in it. And they wanted a song for for it. They wanted something that wasn't on the record. And at that point, we'd actually our drummer. We were in between drummers. And the drummer that had recorded the record had already recorded all the basic tracks. Jason Gherkin had just gone home because Molly McGuire had just gotten signed, and they were getting ready to go do stuff. Um, so we reach out to the drummer that was leaving to see if he wanted to be part of it and said, sure. So he flew out and, and we spent uh, a week writing this song and it was like the fourth that we, we wrote, recorded, mixed it. And we were mixing on the, uh, on 4th of July that summer. And uh, a car picked us up in the morning, took us to airport and flew us straight to set. And then we were there for two weeks. It's so surreal and so fast and weird and bizarre. Very weird times. See, that's the thing uh, I was like curious about, like because I had read that you guys were there for for two weeks shooting that scene that's there in in the club. And what's crazy about it is like that's that's the the film has two very big sort of like party set pieces. There's that scene that takes place in the in the club early on in the film and then there's the um the new year's eve celebration that happens towards the end of the film but mm-hmm. like i mean you're you know you're the, the band is in the film and you're on stage and all of that and you're moving around but like uh, the the vast majority of that song like plays in the background but like your actual on screen time is <laughs> 30 40 seconds <laughs> i was gonna say 15 i don't know <laughs> it's not it's not long they shot so much footage and we tried really hard to get them to let us use the the throwaway the you know the cut footage for for any number of you know for promo or for a video or something and they wouldn't let loose of anything but they i mean they we 
we shot something almost every day for two weeks. So and they had us in the background. We we did a lot. There was a scene where Angela Bassett's running through the hallway and she totally knocks me on the ground and and it was just there's a bunch of things they did that just didn't get used. You know, I mean, so much. There were 700 extras on that set. It was it was bizarre. It was really bizarre. Well, what's crazy about that film is like if you think about it, like you're there shooting for two weeks for like what is essentially one like five minute scene. And the movie itself is like almost two and a half hours long. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's mind-boggling when you you know, really see, especially to be there and see everything that goes into a big production like that. I mean, it's and when you hear those things like, "Oh, this movie costs fifteen million dollars," you're like, "How could anything cost fifteen million dollars?" And then you're like, "Oh yeah, I get it. I see." I think that it, that does explain. Like, I, uh, the the budget for Strange Days was like forty two million dollars. Was it really? I, it makes sense. I mean, it is absurd. And they were like, it was it was one of the most surreal things I've ever been part of in my life. I mean, to to stay and 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 they treated us really really well. They treated us like like you know, I, I mean, like stars. I and mean, we weren't by any means. You know, <laughs> it was it was it was really neat and. We were very privileged to get to be lucky to get to do that, but um, we had a blast. Everybody was just so cool. So what's what's really interesting uh, uh, about your appearance in the film is like you wrote this song specifically f- to perform in Strange Days. Now, was the song like influenced by what you read in that treatment? Yeah. So they basically came. The, the story, how it all came together, is pretty weird, but. And obviously it's been 25 years. So this is how I've been telling the story for years, but who knows if any of it's, I mean, how true, how, how perfectly true it is. But, but the, and we met the guy, the, the music director for the, for the film, he happened to be in the studio in, uh, in LA. I think the studio was in Santa Monica, the Sony studios working in the studio with Juliette Lewis to record those PJ Harvey songs. So they had the, the, the studio had a, uh, uh, the film studio had a music studio or they were connected. So whatever, however it was. Um, and I'll come back to it later, but weirdly enough, there were some Kansas city connections in her band already, but she, he was there on, uh, in the studio working on her versions of those PJ Harvey songs in the film. And he was at the front, at the desk um, chatting with this woman who worked there, who also happened to be dating our drummer <laughs> and, for real. And he was like, yeah, we're, you know, telling her about the movie. And he was like, I really need, there's a scene. I really want this. Just, I want a, a super apocalyptic sounding like doomsday band. And I kind of want somebody new. We're talking and they were talking. This is the part that I don't know if it's hundred percent true, but from what I remember, they were talking to either suicidal tendencies or the cows <laughs> to do what to do what we did. And she's like, "Well, hey, I've got this band that's in New York right now recording. I know them; they're great guys." And of course, I you know she said that exactly either. But, <laughs> but anyway, she said, "I just got rough mixes of their record. You want to you want to take a listen?" And he listened and he said, "That's the band. Let's do it." And but then they said, "We want a song that's not going to be on the record. We want something specific for it." And we worked out a you know worked out a deal and made it happen um and then uh yeah just made it happen really fast so yes we read the 
we read the, the, the treatment and we're like, this thing sounds kind of ridiculous. It's weird when you read a Hollywood script that's like that, where it's like there's no context and you're reading these really, really poorly written lines. You know, they just sound, they sound like comic book lines, you know. It's like Philo says, you know, <laughs> maybe you, you, you know, maybe you can't get away from me or whatever it is, you know. Like, I can't. But it was like, I, I like, this sounds so dumb, but wow this is going to be so much you know like it was gonna be fun and and they were paying us and uh even then when we were there we're like it was absurdly strange like to, to even be able to try to piece together what was really happening you know so when we finally saw the film i was like it was like three movies and wrapped into one film it was the, the strangest thing you know because we were only you know around for for parts of what unfolded you know and even trying to suss what was happening there. It was like, it was like we were in this weird, I mean, that scene of the movie where they're kind of going through and it looks, there's all these little, you know, there's the, they're burning the books over here and then they're shooting darts or people over here or whatever, you know, <laughs> that was all set up and real. Like it, it, it was this massive, it was the, uh, the Los Angeles, it was the old LA times, um, uh, printing press oh. plant. And they, they just converted this like, I don't know, it had to be 30,000 square feet space. Oh, it was right downtown. And, uh, it was, I mean, and into this giant, weird, gothic, uh, freak show venue, you know, it was, it was bizarre and all that stuff they would have, they were shooting and like, they'd, they'd have several different um, teams shooting at the same time. And they had cameras everywhere and they had, they had, they had video, uh, Simulcast video set up so they could rewatch, and it was really, I mean, a learning experience on, on the, you know, on how a movie gets made. But, but yeah, it was. We we tried to make it as heavy and apocalyptic as possible. <laughs> so, uh, how did you? When did you finally see the film? Uh, we saw it at the, the premiere um, here in Kansas City when it premiered, and they they did a uh, the Tivoli played it actually, if I remember correctly. No, nah, I could be wrong on that. I, I can't remember. Whatever it was, a Kansas City premiere, and we, everybody went. All our friends went. It was really, it was really fun. I mean, we didn't do anything like Hollywood special, you know, like red carpet shit. We just all got. They gave us tickets, and we all went. <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> so, what I find really interesting is that Undone's official release was a, a, a split single that yeah. you put out with Glazed Baby, and it's not actually on the film's yeah. soundtrack it was it was one of the biggest bummers it was supposed to be on the track i mean it wasn't in the contract but it was you know uh we were told it was going to be on the soundtrack and we were we were looking forward to that um um that release that kind of widespread release on a soundtrack for a you know a blockbuster or whatever it was i guess it really wasn't a blockbuster <laughs> though it didn't do that well i don't think but but uh uh they just they kept adding more and more bands and they just, I think a lot of them, if you, you see what ended up on there, it's definitely a little more um, marketable stuff. And, and uh, we just kind of got, I think we just got kept getting pushed down the list of priority as to what's going to be on it. And then I was, I was pretty kind of pissed about it. And I was like, like, well, what can we, can we do anything with this? And our manager's like, well, not really. I'm like, I'm going to put a seven inch out. <laughs> she goes, how many are you going to make? I'm like, I don't know, 500. I go, I want to always want to start a label. I'll just put a seven inch out. I'm just going to do it myself. 
and we uh, had just started doing uh, doing becoming friends with Glaze Baby and touring with them, and and uh, or we, I think we actually we were getting ready to go on a tour with them, and I was like, let's just get this done, let's do it, and I don't know, I made my first seven inch, and it probably took me about eight years to sell out of them, but <laughs> I finally sold out of them. I think I did a thousand actually. I did I did something stupid because I thought it was the, the most economical, but but. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. It's five. It's at least five hundred. But, but yeah, they no, no one ever busted my balls on it, and there it goes. That's where it, that's where it lives. And it ended up getting on. It's actually on the re-release. We did a a digital or a, no no we did a, a double disc CD release. Uh, Thick Records, like both our Columbia records went out of print, and we did the Men Are Monkeys record with um, Thick Records. And then we worked out with uh, Zach from Thick and uh, worked out a deal with Columbia to let us reissue the first two albums on a double CD. And we added all the seven inches to that. And that, that came out like probably like 97, I think that came out. Or 98, 97. 98. I can't remember if it came out before Men or Monkeys or after. But yeah, we did. That's It lives on that too. But really, otherwise, it's not really out there. And, Columbia, by and large, they've pretty much left us alone on everything. Um, and uh, all the reissues we're doing, Thick, he's like, just put my name on it. The guys were owned and operated when we did the Shattering last year. Uh, Bill Stevenson from uh, Descendants, he was like, you guys should own it. It's your stuff. He's like, like, like I'm happy. Do, do what you can with it. So I've been very lucky with that so far. So, I mean, we're going to keep going back. And I think the... I don't know. I think we're free and clear from all the all the discussions I've had. So if we go to the if we do, uh, my brain isn't working. If we do in a perfect world, it'll be uh, the first Columbia released on vinyl. But I, you know, we're doing not three hundred issues. We're doing so small. I don't think it, it's not affecting anybody. And they don't even have Sony doesn't even have any of it um, up digitally. Oh wow! Thick Thick has it up digitally. Honest. So, so that that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you. It's like I think the 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 big deal is like you put out the shattering on vinyl uh, last summer, and coming in July of this yep. year is uh, a remastered version of Men or Monkeys Robots Win, which is uh, I imagine probably fairly important to you all, given that that album uh, when it came out was printed uh, out of phase if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Um, Correct. So like how much, how much work did it take to like get it sounding correct? Be honest. All it takes <laughs> is throwing it back in phase. It's a trick. Some people had figured out how to do it with their stereo. Like you could, you could flip the phase on your speakers and it sounds fine. Um, it, it's all it was. It was just, it was just a bad wiring on a, on a, on a, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not the technical guy. Dwayne's the technical guy in the band, but, uh, we had it mastered somewhere and they had just built this preamp or something or this compressor or something. The guy had built it in the studio and he just messed up one of the wires and it, it sounded great in the studio, but like when it went from to the speakers while well, listening, it sounds great. But when it's the, the, from the, I think they were, I think it was, think about it. The mastering was from, no, we had a two-inch tape, 
I can't remember. But anyway, it, it went to the the mastering tape, the two the quarter inch tape out of phase, and no one ever, no one monitored referenced the uh, quarter inch. Oh. So, and that co- and then that went to the plant, and then it was just came over. By the time we heard it, we're like, this sounds like shit, and we thought it was a it was a digital it was a problem at the plant, and they're like, no, this is what you gave us, and then. Then it was kind of figured out that's what had happened, and and at that point they'd already manufactured three thousand CDs or whatever he had made, and uh, it was just kind of like, well, that's that's what we're doing. <laughs> uh, so, in in addition to uh, season to risk plays every so often, still, yeah. Um, you are also a member of the band that fell to earth. Yep. the Casey Bowie tribute that plays every so often as well. That's been going for how many years now? Uh, I think, uh, now I'm like, was it year four or year five? It was, I was just messing with these posters. Um, I think we just did the fourth, the fourth year, I think. Yeah. Year four was this year. And um, you are, uh, are, are, is it co-owner of Record Bar and Mini Bar? Correct. Um, uh, how are you all holding up right now? <laughs> uh, you know, we're just head down. We're trying to do the right thing, trying to convince everybody to do the right thing and and write it out. We're, you know, we've, I mean, every day it's, every day it's a little more um, daunting, but, you know, there's, every day there's other new resources that we're trying to, Trying to figure out how we can utilize, um, you know, we just, we, we, three years ago, we, we didn't think we were going to be open anymore and we got through that. And, um, I don't know. I think we've got a good support network on, and I think we're doing everything we can to help our employees and we're all, we're all sticking together. We've had, I mean, most of our employees have been with us since the beginning. So a lot of them have, or, or at least for quite a few years, you know, and, uh, we're just all getting each other's back and trying to kind of plan and, and be as creative as we can to, to keep going. Well, this year marks what, like 15 years of the record bar? Correct. And yeah. we like, you've been at the, the downtown location for four years. years? Yep. That's four like, years like this spring. I mean, right about now, I guess we did, we did that first middle, uh, we did middle of map, not the first middle map, but the, we did a pop-up for middle of the map for, it'll be four years in April, I guess. So, uh, officially open in the fall, I guess. So, uh, where can folks go to pre-order that men or monkeys robots win reissue? Uh, it's, it's band, it's, uh, Season to Risk Bandcamp, Bandcamp dot Season to Risk. It's up there. Um, yeah, it's almost halfway funded. We did a Kickstarter on the first for the Shattering, just just to kind of figure out how to reconnect with people. Like, you know, we were we were on the internet really early. Season to Risk was like really early, um, and we've always been connected to that. But but the tools have changed, you know, and we we had to kind of how to rebuild, how to connect with our, you know, the 150 people that like us out around the world. <laughs> <laughs> like, but the five, the 500 people around the world that are fans, I don't know what it is, but we always joke about that. 
Like people don't like Susan Risk. I think we always joke that they kept it a secret because it was like their band. <laughs> 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 the same people, I mean, the same people, and I and I love them all. Like I, I they've been supporting us since the beginning. It's really cool. Like I really, I, I love when we get to go play shows because you see these people that you've known for you know thirty years almost. Well, that's awesome. Thirty years, thirty-one years. Well, hey, Steve, thanks so much for ta- talking to me. This was really great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what uh, as as far as Strange Days, are you are you are you a fan of that film, or what? What kind of compelled you to uh, dig into that movie? Well, see, like it's one of those things where I'm always like fascinated by like movies that have live band performances in it because it's always just such a fascinating like. Like sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it turns out really terrible. (laughs) Most times I think. Yeah. (laughs) And like strange days is one of those movies where like the performances in it look like actual concerts I've been to. Um, Yeah. And it's, it's always sort of fascinating to talk to bands who are sort of like present for that sort of stuff. Cause I've, I've, I've talked with what I find also really interesting are like bands who are in films and then like never appear on the soundtrack. Like it, like there was never a soundtrack for it. Like I talked with one of the dudes from made in Japan about the movie, uh, new year's evil, like, which has like a ton of music performances in it. And like, they only ever put out like promo 45s. Like there were supposed to be a soundtrack that never happened. Or I talked with, I talked with Paul Collins from the beat about the fact that they have a song on the soundtrack to Caddyshack, but the song isn't in the movie. It, that scene right. got cut. Yeah, weird. Yeah, all those weird things get cut. That's what I was going to say. I forgot to, to go back to the Kansas City connection. The fiddle player that's in Juliet Lewis's band in the film is, uh, oh shoot, no, I'm not going to remember his last name. Charles is his first name. Uh, he was the fiddle player for Shooting Star. What? And played in and played in some other Kansas City uh, like rock bands in the eighties. It was so it was such a weird thing. We got on set. We really palled around with her band because the scenes were all shot together, and um, there were there there was a lot of shenanigans on on set when they were shooting something to the side or they're doing close ups of Juliet. But behind it, it's like uh, the the drummer is uh, or her band is. Uh, gosh, why is my brain not working today? Um, plays in Perfect Circle and Devo and uh, oh, brilliant Dan- drummer Danny, uh, not Danny Carey, Josh Danny. Freese, Josh, Josh Freese. Oh yeah, oh yeah, the Vandals. Yeah, yeah, the Vandals. Yep. And Josh, he is the funniest guy you've ever met in your life. But he would like every day. He was always messing with the continuity um, directors, and he would like show up with the neck brace, or he'd have like <laughs> something just so really obvious things that he wanted to see if they would catch it. And it was just so funny. And then, then he was like, "Hey, Paul, why don't you be drum? Why don't you play the drums today? And I'm and uh, I'll play bass and season to risk." And and we're like, they were always just like, I mean, it was stuff that never really mattered. But there, we had so much fun on that on that set. But but uh, yeah, that you, you're 100 percent correct about how rarely do they get it get it right. But I thought they did a good job in that. They did the scene once. They they spent a whole afternoon doing this thing where. They had a camera on the floor in the pit, and it was a mo- circular mosh pit, all like, like 100, 200 people, 
just in the floor scene, and they, I, I, they shot me leaping out into it, and then circling like you know, like on a like on a like a crowd surfing above the camera while they're spinning me around. And I like, never got to see the day of any of that. I got to oh. see the daylight of any of that. But what am I trying to say? That never got to see the daylight. <laughs> but I don't know. I could talk forever about it. <laughs> oh man. Well, hey, if anybody's listening and they they have access to that footage, like hit us up. Um... Oh right, for real. <laughs> uh, but yeah, man. Thanks for talking. This has been really yeah. awesome. Yeah. Have a good day. Stay healthy. for talking with me. You can follow him on Twitter at Tulipana. That's T-U-I-L-P-A-N-A. Thanks to Steve Tulipana for talking with me. You can follow him on Twitter at Tulipana, which is T-U-L-I-P-A-N-A. And Season to Risk can be found at their website, robotswin.com, on Facebook at Season to Risk, and on Bandcamp at seasontorisk.bandcamp.com. That's where you can pre-order Minor Monkeys, Robots Win, Volume 2 Remastered. You can find links to purchase all of the music you heard on the show in the show notes for this episode, which are at fromaninspiredby.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at fromaninspiredpod, and can be found on Instagram at fromaninspiredby. You can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Click those follow and subscribe buttons, please. Please hit up the website and click on the Aid and Assistance button to help pay for web hosting and long-distance fees, and remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We'll be back in two weeks talking with composer Joe Kramer about his work scoring films like Way of the Gun, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, and The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.